in this 30th birthday issue that I keep plugging from time to time through this podcast, we've taken each one of our 30 years and we've talked about a key artist who had a key year in those years. So for 2000, we've chosen The White Stripes. And so yeah. we talked to Jack, who's always been a great friend and supporter of the magazine. And he kind of ended the piece by saying, I remember how much Mojo meant to me at Meg back then. They were little Bibles. We never gave a shit about being on the cover of anything. But I remember saying to Meg, wouldn't it be amazing if we could get on the cover of Mojo one day? And we both agreed that's never going to happen. <laughs> Welcome to Discography, the podcast that gives Gen X music maniacs a chance to smell like teen spirit again by connecting with a brotherhood obsessed with rating the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever mattered. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and with three new episodes each week, you're going to gain a comprehensive knowledge of an act's history and output in the time it takes to listen to one album. In this episode, we'll be turning our spray cans on Mojo Magazine and its venerable editor, John Mulvey, in an interview that commemorates the 30th anniversary of Mojo. Coming up, we've got Bob Nastanovich, Deer Tick, Corey Hansen from Wand rating everything he's ever done, Mike Watt rating the entirety of the Minutemen's output, and Steve Turner from Mudhoney. So don't miss out. Open up your listening app right now and subscribe. And for premium membership benefits that outrival the competition week after week, visit patreon.com slash discograffiti. At this point, we've got 100 episodes available exclusively on Patreon. And that number, as well as the discograffiti inner circle, is growing exponentially by the day. That's patreon.com slash discograffiti. And away we go then with part two of the interview. In a strange coincidence of timing, during the intro of the series that we're currently running while recording this summit meeting, a series that was assembled from a 13-hour interview in which the two founders of 1960's soft pop act, The Association, rate everything they've ever released from zero to five stars, I drop a mention in the intro to those episodes regarding the concept of self-effacing anonymity. Today's guest implored me over email, and I quote, I would say that Mojo and the music I like are much more interesting than me personally, so I'd be keener on navigating away from personal reminiscences where possible. I, too, am far less interesting than my incredibly refined musical taste, and so I'll erase myself today as well in solidarity with this man so you can see and hear our favorite works with even greater clarity as we both exist in the breezy shadow of the towering monolith that is great music. He's across the pond, so I've got to assume that he must have just had a kappa. It's Mojo Magazine's editor, John Mulvey. Well, I'm going to um, destroy yet another one of your stereotypes here, Dave, because <laughs> I don't actually drink tea. That's it. Uh, this conversation's over. Yeah, I've ruined everything now, haven't I? When I think about what it actually is like there in the office, my knee-jerk picture is, you know, a bunch of people dressed up in onesies playing air guitar and, and having midnight discussions about the top rock operas of all time. I'm sure it's not like that. What is yeah, the vibe? It's, re- it's really not like that. No. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> 
what is it like? Because you have these people who are so passionate about this thing. Do you have music playing? Or yeah, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. We do have music playing. I mean, it's like we've reconfigured a little bit in the wake of the pandemic, and we don't spend all our time in the office. I'm not in the office right now. I'm at home. Our office is actually being refitted, so it's all been a little bit provisional for the last few months. We're part of a major international publishing conglomerate, so perhaps some of the more romantic, idiosyncratic ideas you might have about the way that Mojo occupy their space. Maybe it's best if we draw a discreet veil over the realities of it. Certainly not like that famous photo from the New York Review of Books Office or something like that, where there's just huge piles of manuscripts everywhere and no clear desk space. That's not the kind of modern environment that we're working in. But we do play music. <laughs> so Yeah, no, I, I just had my fingers in my ears the whole time because I can't live in a world where you guys are not wearing pajamas and having sleepover parties and having music debates. <laughs> yeah, well, I think my firm belief is that you can have music debates without wearing pajamas or having sleepover parties. That's crazy talk. I'm currently wearing a, a bunny onesie. One thing I've for years been watching from the sidelines and wondering about is you have some heavy hitters who can truly count themselves as fans fans of the magazines, like super fans. Bowie was a great example. Paul Weller is probably the biggest example. So, you know that scene in Almost Famous when Lester Bangs is telling Cameron Crowe to be careful getting too close to these people? So how far into their lives do you get? And do you sometimes feel that you're invested to the point where it is hard to be objective about the new music they create? Yeah, that's a good question. What we try and do is we try and have nuanced and realistic critical responses to things but we're also mindful of how fans respond to their favorite artists one of the things that i think we very much grew out of and i don't i'm not sure mojo ever really did it a great time. certainly when i was writing for the enemy and we, we were touching on this earlier you know there are a lot of set piece takedowns of artists do you know what i mean i wrote plenty of them myself not that i'm hugely proud of but it's the kind of thing that we used to do as part of music criticism discourse. You mean sacred cow takedowns? Well, just kind of writing about artists that you don't like and, you know, having a real go at them. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. okay, we've run out of people who like this artist now. We could commission them to review this new record or we could commission this guy who hates this band and get them to pull it to pieces. I don't really see the point of that. That's what people do for free online. Do you know what I mean? One thing they don't do, though, is they don't explain why they don't like it. Because they don't have great critical faculties, but I would argue that a lot of those fairly tedious takedowns that we used to do in different places weren't particularly well informed by much other than vitriol anyway. So the point I was going to get to is that if we're writing about Paul Weller, we're not going to give a new album by Paul Weller to someone who doesn't like Paul Weller. Right. If it's not a great Paul Weller record, then it will be reviewed in the context of here's someone who is fundamentally sympathetic and supportive of Paul right. Weller. So you're going to trust that. As a Paul Weller fan, you're not going to be interested in hearing a Paul Weller enemy shouting their mouth off about a new Paul Weller record. That's not going to tell you what kind of Paul Weller record this is. You know, so that's kind right. of how we try and treat those artists. But getting back to the point you were making about those fans, I did the first cover story proper interview for NME with the White Stripes in mm -hmm. 2001. I went to Detroit and I spent an amazing couple of days with Jack and Meg and got to see a lot of Detroit, which was really interesting. 
and I got to see a lot of Jack's house, which was extremely interesting. <laughs> you know, one of the first things I noticed when I walked into his house, apart from, you know, all the kind of deer's heads and zebra <laughs> heads that were stuffed and mounted on his wall and the collection of clocks and things like that, were the massive pile of mojos in yeah. the middle of his house. This is just before White Blood Cells came out, so yeah, 2001. It was autumn 2001, I remember, because it was the first time I'd flown to the States after 9-11. So. Mm-hmm. And in this 30th birthday issue that I keep plugging from time to time through this podcast, we've taken each one of our 30 years and we've talked about a key artist who had a key year in those years. So for 2000, we've chosen the White Stripes. And so yeah. we talked to Jack, who's always been a great friend and supporter of the magazine. And he kind of ended the piece by saying, I remember how much Mojo meant to me at Meg back then. They were little Bibles. We never gave a shit about being on the cover of anything. But I remember saying to Meg, wouldn't it be amazing if we could get on the cover of Mojo one day? And we both agreed. We both agreed that's never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so again, it's really humbling. He said that. That, you know, Robin Pecknold of the Fleet Foxes was talking about how the validation of Mojo's support at the start of the Fleet Foxes and yeah. when we put them on the cover in 2009, I think it was, it was a similar kind of shock to him. And, you know, then we had Kamazi Washington and John Grant. Both of them were talking about the honour of being made Album of the Year by Mojo for Heaven and Earth and Queen of Denmark. You know, it's cool to matter i think it's important to say i don't want to pander to the artists i i love the fact that these people like our magazine and value our magazine in the same way that our readers do but i would never want to pander to them in a way which would exclude or alienate the readers you know it's more important to me as an editor that i'm doing the right thing for the readers and i'm doing it for the subjects But in a perfect world, and I think we exist maybe in a more serendipitous kind of world than a lot of magazines do, we can operate in a kind of intersection of those things where effectively a lot of the artists that we do cover are our readers. Right. I mean, you guys truly have become just as much a part of the firmament as the artists. You play just as much a part, I think, in the evolution of the perception of music history. And you definitely, irrefutably, have become nicer over the years. Not you personally, possibly you personally. Yeah, I can assure you. (laughs) Well, I mean, I remember in the how to buy section, there was always what to avoid. And you got rid of that. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you know your star ratings. To be fair, you guys, especially for new music, you very rarely dip below three stars. I always want to clarify something about this because I think we're chronically aware of the shortcomings of star ratings and that kind of thing. And it's like, and if you want heated debates and frustrated debates, then you should drop in on the annual "What should we do about star ratings?" debate. Oh man, I would love to be a fly on the wall for that. Right, you know. No, it's, no, you wouldn't. It's pretty tedious. But um, <laughs> it's a pragmatic expediency, I would say. But, <laughs> but no, I mean, the star rating is not the debate. But the critical thing is that it's called the Mojo Filter. It's not a typical review section per se. What we're starting from is the assumption that we've actually filtered out all the dross before right. we actually put the records into the magazine. What's the point of tearing a new asshole to a band who no one's ever heard of just for a set piece kind of slag off? There's no point in doing that. It be better to fill that space with a more obscure record or a more interesting record the 
that our writers are generally enthusiastic about. Yeah. So if everything has got three and four stars, it's because the diversity of the sort of 50-odd people who write for the magazine every month think that those records deserve that, and we're not trying to create hierarchies on the page. We've already established a hierarchy by publishing those reviews in the first place. Which, by the way, I know because one of the letters in the last couple of years was somebody talking about that, and you responded exactly the same way, and that was... Yeah, I never usually respond, but I probably just cracked at that point. Well, no, it's, it, yeah. no for good reason because, you know, a lot of your American readers are probably a lot more star rating centric than your British readers because we're a bunch of assholes over here. You know, so it is worth an explanation. And speaking of that community, so you, I believe, referred to it as an implied community. I think I said an implicit community or something okay. like that. It's the idea that even if you're not actually corresponding and communicating with other members of that community, you are aware and comforted by the fact that you're part of a community because you can envisage that kind of world of shared values where there's tens of thousands of people picking up this magazine every month and sort of reveling in what it does. Yeah, in other words, having a misbegotten sense of prioritized value. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that community, which you found to be implicit, the beginning of Discography was a wish fulfillment thing where I wanted to find that community because I knew they were out there and I knew it was going to take a long time to kind of gather every everyone together. But now with the use of Facebook groups, you know, we have about 1200 people in there where the community aspect is no longer implied. It's very much front and center in the way that this is driven. So now there's people who were maybe not alone, but more alone in their pursuit of finding the next great record, the next great obscure under listened to record. And these people are now coming together and collaborating as a result of having found each other through the podcast, which backseats the actual podcast in a way that's totally okay with me. Hey, lads and ladies, Dave Gebro here. I abandoned my career and moved my family 3,000 miles to be able to focus exclusively on discography. And so if you're like me and enough is just never enough, then please visit patreon.com slash discography and become one of our Patreon soldiers of sound. Discography is an entirely listener-supported show, and it's also intended to be a three-times-a-week music deep-dive experience. So do us both a favor and consider giving it a shot. Trust me, I'm working hard for the money, so hard for it, honey. There's the main show on Friday, a Monday wildcard episode, which is either a soul-bearing interview with that week's special guest, or an offshoot show like Queasy Listening and Rock Cousteau. And then on Wednesdays, there's the humdinger of them all. Discography's the top 10. You got nothing to lose. If you don't dig it after a month, you're refunded. No questions asked. Once again, that's patreon.com slash discography. So during the course of the magazine's history, have there been some very clear rough spots during which you've all had to hunker down together to overcome the brutality of the modern publishing industry? You know, I asked in our group if people had any questions and a guy named Dave Fox wrote in saying, yeah, I'm curious as to where Mojo sells their printed media these days. He lives in a small town, yeah. so it's especially difficult for him. But with so many bookstores closing where he's from, where is Mojo even a 
available anymore. Now, he doesn't live in an urban area or anything like that. Well, I subscribe, but to people who are super aware that all these magazines are closing down, how do you stay on top of all that stuff? Yeah, well, we have some um, very favorable <laughs> subscription deals. Yeah, no, I'm mindful of this. And this is one of the reasons why I think digital membership subscription and also every issue is on Apple News Plus as well. If they're subscribed to that, they can find Mojo on there. That's one of the opportunities I always think of about the States for us as a magazine, because I'm mindful now that if you don't live within an easy drive of Barnes & Noble or whatever, then we can be quite tough to find. You know, I think we're in a bunch of record stores. But um, Barnes & Noble is our main place. And obviously, you know, historically, our sales got hit quite badly when borders went down, because that was a big outlet for us as well. Was that the roughest time? I mean, what's the most oh, difficult God knows. I've no, I've no idea, because I've been here for five and a half years. And obviously, you know, navigating a pandemic and working out how to put magazines out from our homes rather than from the office. It was challenging, but I guess the resourcefulness and the capabilities and the sort of dedication of the Mojo team meant that it was a lot easier than it could have been. But like I say, I really can't speak for rough periods in the past. Our business is pretty good at the moment. And I'm not just saying this in case they listen. I have incredibly supportive publisher and MD who are among, if not the best publisher and MD I've ever worked with anywhere in terms of looking after us and understanding what we do and allowing us to do what we do best and understanding our relationship with our audience and what they're going to go for. It's really, it's super hands-off and we're very fortunate. It's a very healthy environment to work in, I have to say, from that point of view, which I think circles back to something that I was alluding to earlier on is that one of the things, having worked as a music journalist for over 30 years in a bunch of reasonably senior positions at different titles, is that, and I can't speak for Mojo, like I say, because I wasn't there at the time, so I don't know whether it happened at Mojo or not. But when there is a neurotic attempt by a publishing company to try and make something which is fundamentally a specialist title into a mainstream populist title, that tends to be where music magazines go wrong. Well, yeah. Um, and I don't know how that's worked in the States so much, but in Britain, and it did ramp up in the early 2000s as sales figures started plummeting as a consequence of, you know, the internet. <laughs> People thought, how can we talk to as big an audience as we used to be able to talk to? Mm -hmm. And how can we reach out to them? Surely we should broaden our appeal and we shouldn't hmm. just be writing to obsessive music fans. We should try and write to more general music fans. But of course, part of that as a fool's errand was that if you were losing sales of print magazines in the face of the internet, the last people who were going to dedicate themselves to spending money on a music magazine were people who only peripherally engaged with music as a passion. So, yeah. so what you saw a bunch of titles doing was that they, to some degree, alienated their hardcore audience because that hardcore audience felt patronized by what they perceived as a dumbing down of the title. But at the same time, you weren't drawing any new people who would be happier with being dumbed down to, with that tone because they weren't going to come back to print. They weren't going to come to print. That was it. That was a dumb move, I think. And like I so, said, I don't think that actually happened at Mojo. I think Mojo was blissfully insulated from that, but it screwed a bunch of titles, at least temporarily, and in some cases permanently. But no, we don't have that. You know, it's kind of, we're a specialist magazine, you know? Yeah, it's like, but toward that end, 
it's kind of like Velvet Underground and Nico. Everybody who heard it went out and started a band. So, you know, with Mojo, I would assume that most of the people that read what you do subscribe to it. Yeah, probably so. I mean, yeah, I think so. Another one of the really touching things that's happened to me around this 30th anniversary is people have been sending in photos of their complete collections. You know, and it's like people who've managed to accumulate an entire collection of the magazine, all 360 issues, while living in Australia and New Zealand. That's the kind of dedication which we seem to engender in our readers. And it's a great honor to be a custodian of that kind of passion. You know? Was there a point at which you realized the true underlying importance of what it is you do for work as opposed to just fulfilling a young person's hobby with a career? Do you know what? I'm super wary of that kind of idea because I think the magazine I work for has, as we've discussed, an importance to our readers of greater and lesser degrees on case-by-case basis. But I think seeing myself in an important role, I don't think that that's a massively healthy way. And I try and avoid that kind of thinking. I'm try, I try and be... I don't mean you though, John. You know, because here I am, I'm not involved with the magazine. And I'm telling you that to me, it's not just important to me. It's kind of one of the nuclei of my existence. So here's what I would say about this. If we were too pompously aware of that, in the way that we put the magazine together. If we foregrounded that in a more aggressive way in the magazine, then the magazine wouldn't be as good as it is. I think what we try and do is we try and celebrate the music that we love and that we treat our readers as peers who have equivalent knowledge to what we have. We're not being didactic to them. We're sharing our passions with them and hopefully they'll share some of them back. And I think if you overestimate or overamplify or become preoccupied with that concept of importance, then the tone of the magazine and the relationship with the readers would fundamentally change and we'd lose that magic that you're alluding to. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. But, you know, picking up issue number 51 was the first indication outside of my own personal circle that there were other people out there like me. That's kind of what we want. You know, like I say, it's great to hear. It's like, I just want to guard against complacency. I want to guard against egomania. Just don't let it go to your head. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's That's all. That's what we try not to do. It's different to know that what you're doing serves a real purpose and is not just dwelling in the margins or kicking around in certain niches, but it is intrinsic to some people's lives out there. That's very humbling. That's very humbling yeah. and it's good to hear. Be honest here. Are you and the other mojos, do you fear for the history of music? Are you guys curmudgeons about get your young person's ball off my lawn? No, not at all. It's kind of like I always navigate the magazine well away from it's not as good as it used to be. I don't think that's a healthy debate. And I think, you know, we review about 150 new albums a month. You know, we're interested in a lot of new music. We're interested in a lot of enduring artists and artists who've built careers over many years and we're not going to abandon them just through the vagaries of fashion now. You know, we're going to sure. stick with people as long as they're making good music. No, that kind of back in my day kind of discourse, I'm really not interested in. I'm very confident and comfortable in the music that I love and in the music that I think our readers love these days. Um, whereas in my uh, more provocative youth, I would be all too keen to share my hatred of the music that I didn't like. I don't really think about music that way. So one of the things that I try and do every year is, you know, in spite of me talking about, oh, I don't do lists anymore. What I do do is I make a list of, of all the records that I like in a year. And it gets harder and harder to rank them. And I think this year I might not rank them. But it always numbers over 
hundred new albums a year. Yeah. You know, people kind of sneer at it sometimes and say, you can't possibly like that many records. You just can't have the capacity to do that. Well, you know, some of these records I'm not gonna take to my grave with me. Some of these records aren't absolute five star classics. Yeah. But I listened to these records this year and I enjoyed them more than once, many times in many cases. And I think that I'm fortunate enough to have a platform where I can evangelize about the great music that's being made now. And so if I'm just gonna say, well, I'm just gonna do 10 albums this year or 20 albums this year, that means that I'm not giving the opportunity to let people know about another 90 records that I think are really worthwhile to greater or lesser degrees. And so I think there is this generosity of spirit, ideally. People might think it's just me trying to show off about how many records I've listened to or whatever, but I do think 20 plus years ago, I got out of enjoying myself by talking about music I didn't like. And what I'm much more interested in now is sharing my discoveries. Hey guys, before we go on, I just got to tell you about this amazing podcast I came across. I feel like I may be the last one to the show on this, but these guys are absolutely amazing. First, greatest show title ever. It's called the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. I mean, genius, right? But these guys absolutely live up to it. It's Jason Colvin and James D. Graves, and they usually pit two iconic movies or albums against each other to pick which is best, like Jaws versus Jurassic Park or Appetite for Destruction versus Back in Black. But they're so well-researched that they never fail to blow my mind and so funny that they never fail to make me laugh. It's the best of all worlds. Plus, they've started a series of top five lists this season that totally take me back to the misspent days of my youth. I can't recommend them enough. The Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. Check it out. So of a smattering of all the new records that you love, what are some that are really grabbing you? You know, modern favorites or some unique artists that the public at large may not be aware of yet. And by the way, that's a question for Randy Holland, who's in our group. Well, some of the records I really like this year. Let's just stick with 2023 releases. I really like the debut album by The Tubbs. Have you heard The Tubbs? I haven't. So they're a band from London. There aren't that many kind of indie rock records that I get that excited about these days, I have to say. But The Tubbs, they're great. If you can imagine a band who sound like Richard and Linda Thompson, backed by The Feelies, that's kind Ooh. of what The Tubbs are like. Nice. It's withering folk rock harmonies with Richard leading and Linda harmonizing with those kind of harem scarum kind of feelies, kind of flying nun style. The uneasy jitteriness of the feelies. Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. But also, you know, that kind of torrential energy that the feelies have, you know, that kind of headlong yeah. kind. Of, I think one of the beautiful things about the feelies and that kind of music and the tubs as well is that it never feels out of control. It always feels like just before it gets out of control. Right, but right. it feels like a slightly rickety juggernaut driving down the freeway. But then with these, like I say, these really snarky kind of lyrics. That's a great record, the Tubbs debut album. I really love that. What's a couple other ones? Have you ever come across Natural Information Society? No. Okay, so they're a band out of Chicago, and their records have been hugely sustaining for me these past 10 years or so. They're led by a guy called Joshua Abrams, and they're often labelled as Joshua Abrams and Natural Information Society. Abrams is kind of a jazz bassist on the Chicago scene, but he also has a sort of post-rock hinterland. And Natural Information Society is this kind of long-form devotional music. And he plays a guimbri, you know, one of those kind of African lutes, you know, the yes. sort of really resonant sort of bass-plucked sound. So he uses that in lieu of a bass. And then there's a harmonium. There's 
a jazz drummer and then there are varying sizes of horn sections kind of playing over the top and it's this kind of hybrid of I suppose minimalist systems music in that it can be quite scored and hypnotic and repetitive but then with this kind of improvisational aspect so that within that sort of grid of shifting planes of music the horn players kind of step out and solo in it. They put an album out with a great British saxophonist Evan Parker a few years ago there was a Mm -hmm. live album and I was fortunate enough to be at the show that it documented and it's truly one of the best gigs I've seen in the past 20 years and it's absolutely ecstatic and then I would say there's this guy I've got obsessed with this year he's been around for 10 or 15 years who I've only just kind of come across who's a New York rapper called Billy Woods have you heard of him? Of course no (laughs) he's this very cerebral very dense rapper he came up through a sort of the underground scene with Cannibal Ox who I really liked sort of 20 Mm -hmm. years ago when the Cold Vein came out he's kind of younger than them but he's in his 40s now he's also in a band called Arm and Hammer a duo called Arm and Hammer who are just about to put a really great album out but he's very productive and the solo record he made this year was in conjunction with a producer called Kenny Seagal and it's called Maps and it's an incredible record his mother I think was a Jamaican historian and his father was a Zimbabwean Marxist freedom fighter who was part of the kind of anti-racist revolution in Zimbabwe wow a lot to draw from and you can hear it in these lyrics you can hear that kind of cultural and political knowledge along with you know an absolute shit ton of Anthony Bourdain references and a lot of food references it's it's really great and it's quite jazzy sometimes more mothers on the new Arm and Hammer record and Shabaka Hutchins plays on it and uh, various other people the guy from Future Islands Uh sings on the on the solo record yeah it's it's great music my relationship with hip-hop these days is quite dilettante-ish and I'm not all in in the way that I maybe was in kind of you know the late 80s and early 90s and that sort of thing but from time to time there are things that really kind of grab me and pull me back in and that's definitely something that I've been hammering a lot this year load of things like National Information Society that are kind of playing with the same kind of minimalist droney kind of jazz affiliated sort of there's a bunch of things like The Next and this band Setting which is new Nathan Bowles project The Next um, were a band that I was introduced to by Mojo a long time like maybe 20 years ago I started yeah right and you guys were exclamatory about the Farrah Sanders record obviously putting it at number one yeah so you guys definitely have a thing for that sort of music I try and keep my taste out of the magazine to a greater or lesser degree and let a kind of consensual thing and an understanding but equally you want to turn people on to stuff that you love and that stuff the next and that obviously I wasn't putting them in there 20 years ago but I did interview them for a feature for the magazine maybe about four years ago or something like that I love that stuff a lot of things like that you know there's so much great music coming out there's so many you know I obsess over everything that International Anthem put out and they've put so many great records out this year you know there's a great Sandy Antuli record coming out the last Jamie Branch record was so moving and incredible I don't know what else His Golden Messenger I love Mike's records and this one's a really good one I think this year's I really like the Margot Silka record have you heard her? I've heard her not the new one the new one's great the new one's even better than the last one I would say in terms of you know more traditional 
traditional kind of folk country singer-songwriter, but it's really good. Wilco record is great again. I really like the Sam Burton record. Yeah, that's a beautiful kind of Glen Campbell meets Fred Neal kind of thing. The newest thing that I got into as a result of reading about it in Mojo is from the Susie issue in your buried treasure section, there was a piece on Stringtronics Mindbender. Right. Okay, it's sort of yeah. a David Axelrod thing, but without Earl Palmer involved. It's incredible. I've been playing that nonstop. Yeah. So earlier today, I was actually reviewing something which reminded me quite a lot of David Axelrod and that kind of thing. It's this record by this guy called Miguel Atwood Ferguson. Have you ever come across him? No, but I'm going to do a search for it. The record's okay. out in November, I think. So I'm a bit ahead of the game here, but oh, the track okay. came out. He's a kind of session player in LA. He's a violinist, but he's played on a lot of sessions, but he's also, he's kind of aligned with a bunch of kind of new agey sort of things. He made a great record with a guy called Carlos Nino called Chicago Wave a couple of years ago that I loved. It's kind of like an ambient remix of The Lark Ascending by Vaughn Williams. Nice. <laughs> um, I love uh, Carlos Nino. He's part of that world, but he's also part of Kamazi Washington's world and he's played on a bunch of Thundercat records and that kind of thing. He's made this insane record. His debut album is three CDs long, 52 tracks. There's too much of it. Nice, I don't like all nice. of it, I've got to say, but there are bits of it. Even know, All it, Things Must Pass had the third record. Right, yeah. Third <laughs> CD this is. And this is just volume one. There's two more three CD volumes to come. It's quite a lot. But the best bits of it are really in that kind of Axel Rod, Charles Stepney kind of sweet spot. You know, that kind of really richly orchestrated, transporting jazz, which feels cinematic in scope. Oh, yeah. He's great at that. There's one track that's like 15 minutes long or something like that, and Thundercat's driving this bass oh, nice. through it. And then the horn section, it reminded me a bit of Gil Evans as well. There's slight weird orchestration. There's a harp in there. and It's an amazing track. Mark Skillmore on drums, fantastic. And Benny Mopin from one of the Miles sure. Davis configurations is on that record as well so yeah lots of music there's always new things to get excited by it's just like reading the magazine i mean everyone that you mentioned i haven't heard the record so now i gotta you know reading the magazine is part one the rest of it is integrating all these great selections into your life that's what i get to do month after month and if we can contextualize if we don't just gush about these records but actually explain how they fit into that continuum that i was alluding to at the start of our conversation a lot of music journalists sort of poo-poo that whole kind of consumer guide and if you like this you'll like this kind of signposting and yeah. you know we try not to be quite so obvious in the way that we do it but I think there's a massive value in saying look if you, if you really like David Axelrod records here's this new record coming out it's going to have some touch points that you may well be really into you know I don't think there's anything bad about doing that I think that's what as a music fan I want those leads pointing down to me I don't just want a cluster of adjectives I want those temples being placed in the ground to show me where I am. Look, the people who aren't going to just stream it, but are going to go out and buy it, this is hard-earned money, and money is even harder to come by these days. So you got to make right. sure you're buying the right thing. You know, back 15, 20 years ago when I was reading Mojo, and you guys are talking about a release that sounded perfect for me, but it's an import that's going to cost me 30, 40 bucks. Right. I, you know, I wanted to know truly what I was getting myself into. I think we're realistic about how people consume music, and I think there's a lot of commentary which assumes that music
music listeners make binary choices like they're either streaming or analog and actually i think most of our audience are very pragmatic and diverse in the way that they listen to music you know and the, and the way that they consume media in general you know not just mojo but a bunch of other things it's part of an ecosystem which involves streaming and which involves digital stuff but also involves print magazines and lovely old vinyl yeah and I mean, even cds yeah I did, let's just say i didn't find stringtronics on spotify <laughs> right that, and that I, did not and i'm talking to you now from my office where all the walls are lined with cds because i'm kind of one of those paranoid guys who think <laughs> streaming services as we currently know them might not last forever for whatever reason i'm not going to speculate what the catalog on spotify is going to be like in 20 years time i'm looking at the shelves in front of me i'm going <laughs> to grab a cd at random i'm going to make sure that the acapella album of sardinian call <laughs> you think i'm joking i'll put I'm not, no no too. no i am fairly certain you're telling the truth that's Sadly, why I'm it's right next to me i want to make sure that that's available to me somewhere i've never looked to see whether it is on streaming but it's next to okay cowboy by vitalik so it's next to a kind of french house record and what? then next to some violent femmes record so you know i just want to make sure that i've still got this music whatever happens yeah you guys are sort of at the forefront of being stewards of keeping this alive because even just uh, a handful of years ago it didn't seem like just as an example the catalog of led zeppelin would be in question as to surviving but you know some acts have not aged as well with the current generation and then everyone's up and dying on us crosby and tom verlaine the list is endless and it's daily now and it's heartbreaking i tell you actually this is the kind of music nerd i am i went on holiday this summer and i made my family live and stay for a few days in a house at the foot of mount tamalpay and uh, i sort of hiked around and found where uh, jerry garcia's old house was in stinson beach <laughs> that kind of thing oh, nice, so I, nice. I did all of the kind of nerd kind of tourist shit as well i'm at the height of the pandemic i took my wife and my then one-year-old son to big pink i made my family go to big pink as well yeah I've done and that, that. Th that's the precise wording i made my family go to big pink it's quite an annoying drive isn't it i don't it, think i yeah. realized it's not in woodstock it really isn't is it no so. it's definitely not it's in Socrates, it's deep in the woods and it's actually near we got a place in vermont and one of the things that sealed the deal for me is directly across the street from our house is an honest-to-God village green. And I don't know about you, but I'm on the village green. So I know you don't rank things, but village green is my favorite Kinks record. There's a sign that says village green. It's not a thing you see. Yeah, you're wrong, but <laughs> I'm wrong. No, I'm joking. Well, oh, uh, <laughs> oh, oh, do you prefer Arthur? No, I prefer Lola. Oh, you're totally wrong. <laughs> oh, you're 100% wrong. That's one thing that I really don't appreciate is to hear Ray Davies prattling on and on about how unfair the music industry is in song. And there's some stuff on there. I love the Kinks going through all those bizarre concept records in the mid-70s. I love Preservation 1 and 2, but Lola, besides Get Back in Line, This Time Tomorrow, and the title track, and a few others. Strangers. Great song. Great song. Dave's the um, hitter on that. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. But yeah, no, objectively, Lola is the third best. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to have a favorite. So I, I, I had to indulge in a bit of a scrap. You can exist in that space. After two hours of scrupulously trying to <laughs> occupy the moral high ground, I had to show right. my humanity after. 
I bet you're just wanting to do that frequently, but do you, you know what? I'm stop. genuinely kind of not. Hopefully, I'm not okay. I'm really not nowadays. I did it so much for 10 years that I kind of got it all out of my system, you know. And hopefully, the way I was trying to talk about that new music that I was into is kind of shows where I think my energies are better deployed. I think I'm very intolerant of music I don't like in terms of I don't tend to listen to a great deal of music radio because I want to choose. You know, there are some online things and some people's bits and pieces where they're very attuned to my very personal taste and I can sort of discover things from those. But for the most part, yeah, I just want to play my own stuff. There's a bunch of self-protection to it as well. It's like, I think there's a certain dignity and glamour in being an angry young man. But I think being an angry older man or an angry middle-aged man is... <laughs> it's not a good look. It, it's not a good look, especially the way the world's gone with those people asserting their power and obnoxiousness to an even greater degree that whole use of people's petty fears and vindictiveness as political capital means that sort of what may at some distant time have been endearing middle-aged grouchiness is something it is in my health and best interest to guard against as best I can agreed I totally agree. Hence, I work for a magazine that celebrates stuff rather than gripes about stuff. That being said, you got to give me your favorite album of all time. Can't say it anymore. For years, I thought Pet Sounds was. That's my number two. Number one for me is Smile. I honestly don't know. I really don't know. It's just like sometimes I think it's Marky Moon. I really don't know. Yeah. You know, it's like I was playing Fresh by Slime's Family Stone the other day, and that's a pretty good record. You know it's what I mean? It's a great one. Like, yeah. It's like, I'm not sure I want to rank many records higher than that. But then, you know, there'll be another thousand records that I could probably say the same thing about. Well, I know you have a magazine to run. It runs itself, to be honest. But I should go and have a look and see what's going on. A couple of things I want to mention before you have to hop off, which is if there was any doubt as to whether or not you were on the phone with the right guy, this evening I'm guessing on another podcast and we're doing a deep dive on Emerson Lake and Palmer's Tarkus so you're talking to the right guy I think yeah not for my taste <laughs> that's one that I might struggle with a little bit sure but just the idea yeah. that we're even dealing with it go for it guys <laughs> knock yourselves yeah. out <laughs> that may be what actually literally happens yeah I think so uh, and I want to say that I have forgiven Britain after all this time for Oasis's Be Here Now <laughs> I, no I actually love it I love the bloatedness of it. I'm not a big Britpop fan, but I love Be Here Now for what it sort of represents in the arc of that movement. Well, it's death. It's death, yeah. Because I, I wasn't a huge Britpop fan. Most of the music that has come out of Britain historically is of great wonder and amazement to me, but not Britpop for the most part. There were some good bands I wrote quite a lot at the time about Elastica, actually. The and, second one uh, especially. No, I was there right at the start. I knew Justine from when she was in Suede. I wrote about a bunch of that stuff because I worked for Enemy in the 90s. Yeah. I probably spent a lot more time listening to Pavement and, you know, Stereolab. Yeah, those were two very Yeah, you know, Smog Records. Yeah, you know, I've probably seen Stereolab more than any other band, actually. I think I probably saw them about 40 times, something like that. I've seen them, I guess, as early as Transient Random Noise Bursts with announcements. So, yeah. 93. Actually, yeah. you know, one other question I was going to ask you about, which we can skip because I know you got to go, is about listening to music and how, you know, because I do complete discographies. I have an interview with Mark Robinson next week. We're rating every last album he's ever had a hand in putting out. Christ almighty. Okay. I know. I know. So in doing the math to figure out how many records I have to listen to every single day, it's over five to actually listen to and make notes. That doesn't include EPs and singles. Hey, we do it because we love it. 
and we're crazy. There are worse jobs, let's face it. Definitely. I can't thank you enough. I know this came together last minute. I was desperately wanting it to come off as well as I'm thinking that it has. And, you know, I'll do everything I can and will continue to really to shout from the rooftops about Mojo being the only word in music journalism in my tastes these days. It's the only music magazine that I read. Actually, if it's had one deleterious effect on my life, it's that my reading of novels has gone out the window. And it's entirely because of you guys. I used to be a voracious, voracious book reader. And sad to say, no longer the thing because I'd rather reread about music that I know about than read something new. (laughs) Thank you. John, you're the man. It's great to put a face to the name and a personality to the... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I really appreciate your kids stay on my lawn practices. In this day and age, it's very refreshing. It's kind of a point of difference, isn't it? Everyone can be snarky. Not everyone can be supportive and celebratory. Right. And toward that end, I will say, sir, I love you. I know it's not as easy for the British to say it back sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, let's hold fire on that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that about does it. A heartfelt discography thanks goes out to my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason, John Mulvey, the outrageously outstanding Mojo magazine whose 30th anniversary issue is on sale now and which I'm just about to start after I finish the current issue, my incredibly loyal fans, and especially the entire Patreon community, the soul Soldiers of Sound. I love every last one of you, and this show would not exist without you, my friends. Speaking of friends, it's high time for some new ones. They're in our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. That's the best way to find out what's coming up on the show, but there's a hell of a lot more. You get recaps of the day in music history, the ability to pitch questions to guests, polls that put you in the driver's seat on guest and band decisions, and access to a thriving creative hub if you're looking for a collaborator. In fact, I know firsthand about some very exciting projects coming together because of fellow soldiers who collided in our incredible group. Honestly, it is objectively the only worthwhile thing that's ever come from Zuckerberg's college efforts. So make sure you don't miss out. You can find the link to the Discography Soldiers of Sound Facebook page right there in the show notes. And if you don't mess with the Zuck, no sweat. Just email me at info at discography.com and I'll keep you in the loop. So now that it's done and you want more, another way to dive even deeper into the pantheon of irrefutably mind-blowing Mojo-approved music is to visit Episode 1, which deals with early Barrett-era Floyd, Episode 12, which rates all of PJ Harvey's catalog, Episode 15, which is the Raincoats, with Pitchfork writer Jen Pelly guesting, Episode 17, which is Don Randy on David Axelrod's catalog, Episodes 28 and 29, Bob Mayer on The Replacements, Episodes 64 to 68, which is our Black Sabbath series, Episodes 103 and 104, Vashti Bunyan, and then Episodes 107 and 108, Joel Selvin's Jim Gordon series. But wait just a minute. This is just the entrance to the rabbit hole. Join us as we descend down, down, down on week two of Discography's the 30th anniversary of Mojo Magazine Deep Dive. Of course, if you're a Patreon subscriber, then you already know to keep your ears peeled throughout the week, because this Monday brings the Patreon-only wildcard episode, Mojo Magazine Bonus Material Part 2, not to mention Wednesday's incredible Patreon-only episode of Discography's Buried Treasure Show, Rock 
Cousteau. It features the indomitable Joe Kennedy and focuses on our most recent Mojo recommendation obsession, Peter Bratzman and Hans Benin's Schwarzwald Fart, which was recorded in Germany's Black Forest using instruments such as trees, sand, land, water, and air. This has got to be heard to be believed. Your best bet, frankly, is to allow us to help make sense of it for you. Make sure you visit patreon.com slash discograffiti and check out the thematically related deep dive as a music obsessive's way of life. Our Patreon's been up and running for a year, and with two episodes a week reliably posted literally nonstop, there are 100 Patreon episodes at this point. That's an entire universe of incredible content available to you for the price of a cup of coffee a week. Week. And of course, be sure to mark your calendars because next Friday, October 13th, we're coming at you with part one of our exclusive post tour interview with the beating heart of pavement, Bob Nastanovich. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss it. And so, from now till then, don't let our youth go to waste, lads and ladies. It's Discography. Discography.